So my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm really excited for this time of year. Uh, not only is uh, are the Christmas playlists on full throttle in our household, and um, man, just enjoying the season and its time, but next Sunday is really an amazing opportunity for you as a person to invite your friends who could be anywhere on the journey of faith. One quote that I've heard years ago that has really stuck with me is that there are a lot of people who are far from God, but they're close to you. And what would it mean for you to invite them to one of our services next Sunday? Now, we intentionally created three services uh, so that we can have space to accommodate everybody and still give people space. And those three services at 9, 1030, and 12. um, And uh, we're so grateful for that. And I want to challenge you, first and foremost, to be thinking about who you can invite. For some of you, that invitation will be in person. For others of you, it's going to be a YouTube link to send out. But we would love for you to uh, be a part of that and to join in what we believe God is going to do. I also want to say a thank you because uh, in this Christmas season, in doing three services, uh, we also put out an ask that you all responded to amazingly well. Uh, we, need, uh, we needed a bunch of volunteers to help uh, run our services, to make sure everything runs with excellence. One of our goals and hopes at Renaissance is that we don't burn anybody out. And man, in like the first week, over 100 people signed up to be volunteers. So give yourselves a round of applause for that. We're very grateful. I don't know the final count, but I know we still have a couple of spots available. So here's the ask. Whether it's next Sunday or January 2nd, uh, we would love for you to serve. Now, you can do that by going to our events page or clicking on the links on one of the emails that has gone out or will go out this next coming week. And all you would be committing to is this one service. So if you're going to be here, one of my challenges is that you would be a person who contributes and not just consumes. So if you're really excited about it, I want you to consider that you would serve in one of those services next week. I want to be turning people away. We have so many volunteers. So we're excited for that, but I'm also excited about right now. We're going to get down to it. That cool? All right, let me pray for us. God, our Father, I pray that you would meet us in this moment. Lord, I pray that the words that I say, Lord, would be inspired by you. And Lord, I pray that you would redeem the things that uh, are not from you, that your Holy Spirit would speak to every single person in this room exactly where they are, filling the gaps of my inabilities with your ability and your power. God, may we leave today more aware and more convinced of your love for us. Uh, May we leave inspired and encouraged, uh, Lord, to follow after you. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So growing up, uh, I think my parents realized pretty quickly that I had an addiction that they could not afford to keep up with, sneakers. And uh, uh, they could have afforded it, they just didn't want to. And (laughs) as soon as I was able to get my working papers, my parents gently encouraged me to get a job. Uh, That's not the way my father said it, but I'm a preacher, I can't say what he, no, I'm kidding, he doesn't. (laughs) My pops is an old school Baptist deacon, he doesn't use profanity, but... He encouraged me to get a job uh, to pay for it. So I got a a bunch of jobs growing up that I would do uh, in order to fund my habit. Uh, Probably the worst job I ever had was being a landscaper. That is not fun. Uh, Cleaning out rose beds, they look pretty at the end, but man, I would go home with bloody hands from cleaning out rose beds. But probably the job I did to make the most money in high school was I was a waiter. And I worked at a catering hall, and I would do on Saturdays, 16-hour shifts from about 8 in the morning till about 2 in the morning. And I'd wear a a tuxedo and some cheap penny loafers, 
And man, those days were, were hard. I remember like at the end of the workday, I would just be sitting on the curb outside, exhausted. Now, I would always be really grateful whenever there was a black wedding, they had a good DJ, you know what I'm saying, electric slide, I, you know, and make the shift go a little bit quicker. But still, waiting was incredibly difficult. After your 203rd bar mitzvah uh, that you've given out, you know, 10,000 Shirley Temples, uh, it gets old really, really quickly. And it, I don't know why they call it waiting, because it is like a lot of work. Uh, but I've discovered something over the years that is much more labor-intensive and much more exhausting and much more difficult than doing a double shift at a catering hall. It's not waiting on tables, it's waiting on God. Waiting on God in your life. Waiting on God to do something that is outside of the reach of your own ability. Waiting on God to show up in your life in a way that you need him to show up. For thousands of years, men and women who have placed faith in the God of the Bible have had to wrestle with this dilemma. Uh, over this past couple of weeks, we've been doing this series on real love. And one of the challenges in doing a series where we talk a lot about relationships is that it digs up a lot of the challenges that people have with relationships. For some people, they are even more and more aware of the estranged nature that they have between them and their parents or them and their kids, or them and their siblings. And to talk about what it means to love difficult people, they don't need to imagine who that difficult person is. They have their picture right in their head. And for them, maybe they're hoping and praying that Christmas, this Christmas, would be something that is marked by real closeness and intimacy in their lives. But people might be polite, but it would just not be what they were hoping for. For other people in this relationship series, uh, they've become uh, extremely aware of the gap in their relationship, maybe it's in their own marriage, between the picture of marriage that they hoped that they would one day have and the reality that they are currently living in. For other people, they're single, you're single, and you're hoping that God would bring someone into your life that you can be proud about, that you can really do life with, that you can go on this journey of life with, and you're hoping and you're praying and something and nothing really has happened just yet. And you find yourself in this position where you're waiting. What do you do when there's nothing that you can do? For others of you, it's not a relationship issue that makes waiting difficult. For me, here's one of the most painful lessons I've learned in the last number of years. I've been waiting and hoping for justice. Every single time there's another hashtag on Twitter, it really does mess with my faith. It's not so much the atrocities of what you are experiencing. It's the fear and the gap in between what I believe God has promised, that God says he is a God of justice who's going to bring justice, but I don't see it. I just see another hashtag. What do you do when there's nothing that you can do to, to end something in, in your life? We need to learn how to wait on God. For others of you, it's not justice necessarily. It's not a, a relationship. It's just something that you're hoping that God would do, and it's outside of your grasp. It's something that you wish you could do, something that you wish you could accomplish. Maybe it's a loved one that you wish would come to faith and have a real relationship with God. And despite all of your efforts and their attempts, they're polite and they're kind and they're saying, hey, no thanks, I'm good. What do you do when there's nothing that you can do? Well, first and foremost, I want to remind us 
that in order to have faith with the God of the God in, of the Bible, we need to be reminded that the people of God, one of the major parts and components of faith is learning how to wait. One of the things that you'll notice, if you were to flip through the Bible, you'll see something called the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, there are a number of stories and profound uh, words to us, but the Old Testament in so many ways is incomplete because the Old Testament is all pointing towards the fulfillment that will come one day when the Messiah, when the Christ comes. And the people of God in the Old Testament were people who were, they were waiting. Now, these people, the ancient Israelites, were living in a dark period of their history. Uh, For a lot of it, they were in captivity, and they struggled to know whether or not God loved them or whether or not they'd ever make it out. And Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament before Jesus was born. And in the last chapter of Malachi, Malachi prophesies, surely the day is coming, a day where the Savior is come and justice will be restored, where the oppression will be over because the leader, the Savior, the Messiah will be here. Now, if you make the mistake of flipping too quickly in your Bible from Malachi to Matthew, what we can do in one second actually took 400 years. For 400 years, there was this period of waiting, of silence. Now, we would do very well to learn what it means to be people who wait well. In the season of Advent, Advent basically means arrival, Uh, we are reminded that out of darkness, God comes and God appears, but not before there was a period of significant waiting. Now, Israel was waiting for a savior. Uh, Their savior that they were hoping for was prophesied for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I want to read a scripture in Isaiah 53 because I think there is a, a direct correlation in the character of God that we believe in and are waiting upon and our ability to wait with hope, wait and trust, and to wait and not be overcome uh, in, uh, in negative emotions or in fear or sadness. So Isaiah 53, 1 through 7, it says this, Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He didn't have any impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went away, went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Now, this scripture was written about 700 years before the arrival of Jesus. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, God's people believed that their Messiah was coming. And here's what Isaiah says about their Savior. Now, in Advent, I I love Christmas season. I love the music. I love the songs. I love the get-together. 
Uh, I love coming around around a, a good meal. Um, I'm hoping this year to get some pastelon. My Puerto Ricans, y'all know what that is. Um, but a lot of times we forget about the, the depth of what scripture writers have told us over the centuries about who is coming. It is our Jesus that came not just to show us the way. He didn't just come to be a teacher. He didn't just come to give you a couple of lessons on how to get your life right. He came to be a savior. And for all those who receive him, to receive that in our lives. Now, I was reading through Isaiah 53, and a story came to mind from a couple of weeks ago in my apartment about what it looks like to, to leave safety, for Jesus to have left the safety of heaven and to enter into our humanity just to take on our punishment on the cross. A couple of weeks ago, I was asleep, and man, I heard this like bone-chilling scream from outside of our window. Now, most of the time, you know, once a week, we hear something crazy outside. This is New York. I mean, you hear the craziest of crazy things. But this was, this was different. This was the screams of someone who was in sheer terror and panic. It was someone who was being attacked. Now, I'll be perfectly honest with you. The first thing I thought um, after I kind of woke up out of my grog, groggy state was, like, I didn't want to go down to see what was going on. Because if I went down... Whatever was happening to them would have happened to me. And for a perfect stranger, um, that was something, that was a calculation that I was thinking about in my head. Thankfully, uh, I, saw, I started to see those flashing lights outside, and I've never been more grateful for the police being outside. Um, and uh, uh, thankfully, the woman, actually someone, the security guard from our building came out to assist her, and the woman is fine. Um, but I'll be perfectly honest, it was, I was afraid to think about going down and what would happen to them. You want to know what Christmas season is all about? Jesus came down, not just at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life, to take your place. Now, think about this. Who would I go downstairs for? I, I don't know that I would go down for a perfect stranger, but I would go down for my kids. If I would have heard the screams of my children, trust me, I would have been on the first thing. I would have run down that, those stairs as fast as I could. Scripture tells us that God, despite his infinite nature, has decided from his own will to make us his children, and that Jesus left the, the safety of heaven to come down to earth and to bear our sins on the cross. Now, this is the character of God. This is the character of God that I want us to hold in the highest of high esteems as we think about what it means to be a people who wait on God. This is not a God that, has, um, that, that treats you like a pawn. Jesus is the only one who would, uh, who would dare to teach something like uh, the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. The one who was infinitely valuable giving up his life for that was, which is discardable. So as we think about what it means to be people who wait, I want us thinking first and foremost to be reminded that Jesus is this immensely beautiful Savior who, as Paul says in Romans 8 and 32, if God didn't spare Jesus, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? That while we are waiting, that we would find profound hope in the gospel that God left eternity and came down in Jesus. But there's also a lot of lessons that I want us to be thinking about as we are uh, people who we'll find ourselves in a variety of situations that will, will require that we wait. 
Psalm 27 and 14 says it like this, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart be courageous. Say it again, wait for the Lord. Now, as a pastor, one of the things I've realized personally and spiritually is that what God does in us while we are waiting is oftentimes just as important or sometimes more important than what we are actually waiting for. And we forget sometimes in life that God is never in a rush to fulfill his own promises and prophecies. Now, one of the reasons I think this is so important is because a lot of times there are those of us in this room and watching online who we don't even realize how unable we are to wait with hope, with real hope. In a lot of ways, we've given ourselves over to cynicism. Now, we're New Yorkers. Cynicism is a good thing, right? Uh, you have to be a little cynical in order to survive. Uh, but in so many different ways, our, our cynicism is not just in how we deal with people on the sidewalk, but it's also in the way that we treat God. In so many ways, we've, we've lost hope. We're cynical to a point to where uh, we, we claim that we are realistic when it's really just a cover-up for the loss of hope that we have in our lives that God could ever do anything different. For others of us, it's most evident in a loss of prayer that once upon a time, you would pray for certain things, and now it's not even something that you even think about. You've just stopped praying about it. You've lost hope that the situation could be any different than what it is. For others of us, this one is really tough. Uh, we've actually developed an alternate theology of what God is like based on our circumstances. So because we're tired of waiting, we've just said, well, surely God cannot be good. God cannot be powerful because if he were good and if he were powerful, then God would not be allowing this thing to happen in my life or in, in the world. And so I will develop an alternate theology that says that God is absent, God is distant, or God doesn't care about me, or God, God is punishing me. Now, it happens subtly, but if we're not careful, we'll start to believe things about God that will rob us of our ability to have hope. Now, here's one of the things that's profound about Scripture, and if you read the stories of Scripture, there is oftentimes a massive delay in what God promises and what actually happens the fulfillment of that promise. If you think about the life of Joseph, uh, Joseph was a man who had dreams and visions from God that he would one day be great, that he would be a person of great influence, and he would, in some ways, be like a savior figure to his people. Joseph, despite this amazing promise on his life, he went on for the next 25 years to go through exile, abandonment, slavery, betrayal, and imprisonment. What happened? God, I thought you promised me that I was going to do all these different things. What about this, this, this period in between? Now, at the end of Joseph's life, he says this, this one line that has always given me so much hope and encouragement. Joseph says this, what men meant for evil, God meant for good. That in everything that was happening in Joseph's life, God was working behind the scenes in so many different ways. Now, if we read scripture honestly, it would show us a picture of a God that, yes, there are delays, but... It is a God that we can truly have hope in uh, if we will allow his character to inform our situation, not the other way around. So I also want to be really clear. Uh, uh, a lot of times when we talk about waiting, you know, I, I think about this in my own life. A lot of times we're waiting on God to do something, but we're not, we're not waiting on God. 
We're waiting on God to do this thing, but we're not really waiting on God. And if and when God doesn't do the thing, man, it really will cause, cause our faith to collapse. A lot of times, uh, the last couple of years, people have been talking about this concept of deconstruction. And uh, deconstruction is basically reevaluating your core beliefs. Um, and there's a whole lot of crazy stuff on the internet about it. But uh, I remember about 10 years ago when I was really deconstructing my faith. And I was wondering, like, yo, is God real? And if he is real, does God love me? And if he was loving me, then why would he allow this to happen in my life? I've told the story a lot of times, it's on our podcast now, that um, you know, my late wife passed away from cancer. And I believed, and I, there was this piece of me that always believed that God was going to heal her. And I was praying like crazy. We were fasting. We had a whole prayer chain praying at noon every single day for God to, do, for God to show up in, in our lives. And in my brain, I was waiting on God to heal her. And once he didn't heal her, it, it absolutely shattered me and crushed me. Now, when I rebuilt my faith, it wasn't based on the fact that God was going to do something specific. It had to be rooted in something deeper than that. It had to be rooted in the character of God. And in those moments, in my worst and most confused moments, the only thing that made the most sense to me was the cross. And I would think to myself, Jordan, you can't look at every single day situation to evaluate God's goodness and his faithfulness based on that. It has to be rooted in something deeper. I say that as a, as a hopefully a comforting challenge to you as you're thinking about what it is you're waiting on God to do. What are you waiting on God for? Would we allow God to do something different than what we are expecting him to do without giving up hope that he is good and he is faithful and he's in control? So I want to give us some practical stuff uh, about what it looks like to wait uh, for God because I don't want us having a circumstantial faith because that's a, like a really, really fragile approach to God. Because faith is, is in essence, like if you were to like deconstruct the word, faith is basically like a, a, a verb that means like to, to lean on something. In, in Proverbs it says, do not lean on your own understanding, right? And a lot of times, if we're hoping that God does something, if we're putting our faith on that and it doesn't happen, we're going to come crashing down. So I, I want us leaning on something stronger than that. So um, I want us to have some really practical stuff to take away today on how you can find endurance this Advent season to how you can find encouragement from scriptures on how to wait, how to wait on God. The first thing I think we need to do is to grieve your pain, to grieve your pain. This is always a thing that nobody wants to hear about, but it's also the most important thing. The first and most important step is to go inward. Now, a lot of times we are unaware of what is actually bothering us or that we are, uh, what's going on in our own internal world. And scripture gives us a different um, diagnosis for, for grief as a, as a concept, not as something to do as a last resort, but something to do uh, thoroughly and routinely. Jesus says these words in Matthew 5 and 4. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. One of the challenges of an Americanized Christianity is that we have lost really a lot of rooting in Jesus and the practices that have formed and shaped Christian communities for millennia. If you are going to be someone who waits in the in-between time when there's nothing that you can do, the first and most important thing for you to do is to grieve your pain. Now, here's what I do. This is descriptive, not prescriptive, uh, but I will set 
a timer, and I've talked about this before, and then um, my hope is that I'll talk about it enough that you would one day actually do it and implement it in your life. I, set, I will set a timer for 15 minutes when I know something is truly bothering me. And I'll say for 15 minutes, Pastor Jordan, logical Jordan, is not allowed in this room. For 15 minutes, I'm going to sit and I'm going to grieve the things that are bringing me pain. And I will write it out for 15 minutes. I'll set the timer and I will allow myself to feel the full weight of the things that are grieving me. One of the biggest challenges for people is we've never allowed ourselves to feel pain and a lot of pain that is misdiagnosed gets misdirected. And we have a lot of unhealed stuff inside of us, unidentified stuff inside of us that is causing us to act in so many different ways and we've just not gotten in contact with what's really going on in our lives. So a lot of times I talk about, um, you know, I've talked about earlier just a, a real challenge with me in faith and waiting on God with respect to issues of justice. And whenever I see another hashtag, the first emotion that overcomes me is real seething anger. And I hate when it happens like on a Friday or a Saturday because I'm like, yo, there's no, I, I the last thing I want to do is get on a stage and start talking about anything. And um, what I've realized in my time of like intentionally bringing my grief before God is that the thing that I think is anger is actually not anger at all. It's fear. When I see another hashtag, I'm actually not that angry because I don't know the person. I'm actually just experiencing the fear that something might happen to one of my boys one day or something might happen to me and I would be unable to raise my boys. Now, that's a, the biggest fear that I have in, in, in my life. And what happens when I'm allowing myself to grieve is that I think going into it that I'm going to be miserable, but I actually end up feeling so free. I still feel angry and I still feel sadness at what has happened to someone, the loss of life or whatever the scenario is. But man, it is so, so, so freeing to get a handle, to bring what is unconscious to your conscious level. It is so freeing to bring that up to the conscious level and allow yourself to know what's going on in your life. So when I talk about waiting on God and the challenges for that, the first thing I want you to do is to grieve your pain. I want you to know what exactly you're wanting God to do in your life and where you are in your ability to trust him through that. So number one, I want you to grieve your pain. Number two, I want you to admit your dependence on God. Over and over again, I want you to confess your dependence on God. Uh, a lot of times in my own life, uh, I do this very physically that I'll go and I'll pray and I'll start with my hands down and I, say, and I open my hands and I'll say, Lord, everything that I feel like I'm trying to control, I let go of it. I'm not in control of anything. And I turn my palms up to receive. I say, Father, help me to receive everything it is that you want me to receive. And for me, that's a very physical reminder to admit my dependence on God, both to release this fake control that I think I have and to receive from God everything that he has for me. Now, here's a few things that are true about me that might be true about you. I love certainty. I hate uncertainty. One of the biggest challenges that I've had in the last number of months as a pastor and a leader here at Renaissance is that there have been some situations that are really exciting, but they would put us in uncertain territory that I've never been in before. And I would always prefer certainty over uncertainty. I would always prefer feeling independent over feeling dependent and needing someone. I always want to feel powerful, and I never want to feel vulnerable. 
Here's a confession from me, and this is probably true about 97% of people who do full-time vocational ministry. They are the first people to give help, but it's so hard for them to admit that they need help. Now, I prefer certainty over uncertainty. I want to be, feel powerful, and I want to feel independent, but that's not, that's not what God has for us. As a matter of fact, I'm setting myself up for failure, for certain failure, when I am believing that I am in control of any situation. Um, when we think about the last number of months, last couple of years in the pandemic, it's such a painful reminder that we are not in control of anything. Every time I hear about another, uh, you know, a Marion variant or whatever, I'm like, Lord, <laughs> what are we doing? What are we doing? Hey, but there's been a quote that has helped me over the years uh, when I admit my dependence on God. It comes from a woman named Corey Ten Boom, and she's an author. And uh, I read one of her books called Hiding Place. Oh, I listened to the audio book, which counts just as much. <laughs> and in the book, uh, Corey Ten Boom is an amazing woman. She was uh, part of a church that was around uh, during the Nazi rule. And she was a part of a church that was in opposition to Hitler. And she was helping others and helping Jewish people. And she and others were arrested as they lived out their faith in ways that are so encouraging and inspiring. When I was reading a book or listening to the book, I was uh, thinking to myself, man, I, I hope, I sincerely hope that Jesus and his will in my life will be more precious to me than even my own safety. That they put it all on the line. But here's a quote that she says in the book, and it's something that I've, I've used before, and I hope you'll put it into your, um, your practice as well. She says this, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust your uncertain financial future, your uncertain relational future, your uncertain um, vocational future, nothing. Never be afraid to trust your unknown future to a known God. So, number one, we have to grieve our pain. Number two, we have to admit our dependence on God. And in admitting our dependence on God, it will allow us to not be afraid of truly trusting our future to, an, to a known God. Number three, we have to pray without giving up. Pray without giving up. In Luke 18, Jesus, uh, the scripture says, uh, now he told them a parable on the need to pray always and not give up. I'm going to read that again. Now, Jesus told them a parable on, the need, on your need to pray always and to not give up. For those of you who have laid down those prayer requests, I hope these words challenge and comfort you. Jesus wants us to pray always and to not give up. I, I get the discouragement. There's probably nothing more discouraging than unanswered prayers. But here's what I would tell you. Keep praying. While you are waiting, keep praying. Here's why. What God is doing in you as you are praying and waiting is just as important as what you are hoping that God does for you. Keep praying. It is not in vain. The other thing is I don't want us to get accustomed to a life, a version of faith that doesn't expect God to show up. Uh, this is one scripture in 1 Kings 17. It was one of the first sermons I ever preached. Um, about a man named Elijah. And Elijah was praying for God to send rain. It had been a severe drought in the land. 
And as Elijah was, was praying for rain, it said that he would send his servant to go to the mountain to see whether or not there was any formation of what he had been praying for. Seven times the servant would go back and say, there's nothing. There is no evidence that anything different is happening because of your praying. Scripture says that Elijah put his head down and kept praying. And on the seventh time, the servant came back and said, I see a cloud the size of a man's fist. And then later, the, the, the heavens opened up and it poured down raining. I don't want us to ever lose hope that God might show up in our lives. It might not happen as quickly as we want it to happen, but I don't ever want us to lose out on what God wants to do in us and through us while we are praying and to never give up. Uh, my wife, shout out to Jess, she did this podcast for Renaissance Real Love Conversations. And um, the first episode with Lester and Jamie, one of the things that was most profound about their story, Lester was saying that there was a period of about four years of real strife and challenges. And he was just doing everything he could in those moments just to pray that God would show up to continue to pray, and God did eventually show up in their lives in amazing ways. Their life and their story is a testimony of God's grace and God's power and God's goodness. But it did not happen because they gave up. And I want to encourage us to be people who continue to, to pray. Number four, uh, to do your part. Galatians 6 and 9 gives us a sobering reminder. It says, let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Read that again. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time, the proper time, if we don't give up. What, it is, what is it that you are um, hoping and waiting on God in your life to do? If there's a part that you can do, I want us to think about the quote from Arthur Ashe to, you know, do what you can, um, uh, use what you have, and start where you are. Wherever you are, use whatever you have and to do your part trusting that God will fill in a gap of your massive lacks. Now, something I've been really excited about the last number of, uh, last number of months is something called Pray March Act. It's an organization that me and a number of pastors are working on in New York City, and we are hoping to see justice rain down like crazy in New York City and nationally. And we are organizing with 100 churches all throughout the city to really seek to get legislative change that would tear down racist structures that are currently existing. And yes, give it up for, yes, we're really excited for that. And for the last year, we've been working really, really hard, and we're just trying to do our part. And we're trusting that God will meet our inability with his ability. That, that launches on Martin Luther King weekend, so we would love your prayers on that. But what is it in your life that you're hoping that God would do? How are you waiting on God now? I want to challenge you just to take a step in that direction to do whatever your part is. Last thing, uh, number one, Grieve your pain. Number two, admit your dependence on God. Number three, pray without giving up. Number four, do your part. Number five, ask for help. One of the challenges of modern Christianity is that we think it can be an individually accomplished uh, task. Galatians 6 and 2 assumes that you and I are in relationship with people that would allow us to be uh, carried. Galatians 6 and 2 says, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, one of the ways that you can ask for help is something that we do at the end of every single service and something that we make available for everyone. It's, it's prayer. For some of you, every time you hear a message and you're convicted and you're like, oh man, that was for me, 
you hear the benediction, you go out blessed, and you walk out those doors, and you don't even allow people to pray for you and to lay hands on you. But there's a lot of power in coming together and to be prayed for, and you can submit prayer requests online as well. Um, but there is nothing weak about asking for help from your DNA group, from those around you, because I think it just might give us endurance to carry on. You know, sometimes I think about in my own life, I have made it on borrowed strength. I have made it on borrowed strength so many different times. Times when I felt like I am so far outside of my comfort zone and my ability, the only way I'm going to make it through is if somebody loans me their faith because I don't have it right now. Now, Scripture tells us to carry one another's burdens, and we rob other people of that opportunity because we don't let them know what those burdens are. So I want you to grieve your losses. I want you to admit your help, your, your need for, uh, for God. I want you to continue to um, ask for help in every scenario. Pray without giving up to do your part and to ask for help. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, allow us to be people who wait, who don't wait begrudgingly, who don't wait because we have no other choice, but wait with a firm hope rooted in your character that you as our Savior left heaven and came down at the cost of your own life for us and that there's nothing you would spare for us. Let that be the driving force that drives us to faith to trusting in you, that we would be people who wait with hope, honestly, but thoroughly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.